Nick. Hey, Teddy. Do you remember the book, Blue Like Jazz? Oh, God. I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh, God, I Forgot About That, the podcast that explores artifacts from turn-of-the-century Christian culture. So, what do you remember about Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller? You know, weirdly, that's one of those books that was so ubiquitous that I could probably in just casual conversation stumble into a handful of his points and his and his, you know, uh, goals in that book. But I don't think I ever actually read it. Okay. Okay. Um, But it was one of those things that um, particularly the more I use this word lightly progressive Christian friends of mine. Yeah. uh, latched onto as like spiritually meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As I was researching this episode and rereading the book, I was stumbling upon all of the other thinkers that are sort of in his group of, you know, more again, more progressive or what I'm going to describe as the emerging church. And he's definitely one of the most popular, you know, within this group, but he also did not maintain his presence in the community so that could also be it's almost like he had a moment and it was a big moment but my perception of his timeline is that he did not have the like lasting power of someone like a rob bell blue light jazz and then subline non-religious thoughts on christian spirituality (laughs) was wow that's such a loaded subtitle so loaded was published in 2003, again, by someone named Donald Miller, younger guy. The book's primarily autobiographical, and it moves in chronological order, loosely, beginning around the time he's like a little kid and progresses through his young adult and adult years. The chapters are more theme-based, kind of similar to the sort of writer um, Anne Lamont. Anne Lamont, do you know her? Yes, I love her yeah. work, actually. Yeah, I love her too. And her chapters are very much like they make sense on a cohesive level when all put together, they feel cohesive, but they could also stand on their own. And that's, I think, what Donald Miller is going for here. Broadly speaking, the text is a reflection on his understanding of the nature of God, specifically the Christian God. Okay. I think in order to understand Miller, it's really important to describe again. And I I know we already did this with the Rob Bell episode, but just to reiterate what we would probably call the emerging church movement, because Donald Miller is absolutely writing from within that tradition, whether he, you know, identifies the specific name or not. Right. The emerging church is a primarily a Protestant movement. In the late 20th to early 21st century, started in the 1990s, but it probably had its biggest heyday about a decade like later, maybe 2005 to the early 2010s. Its roots are what we might call postmodernism, though I think as academics, we probably have a conflicting relationship to whether or not we believe that that's an adequate term, but it's the term that's most thrown around when describing the emergent church. Mm-hmm. among the emergent church folks themselves and also the people who are against them. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember as soon as you said that, like vivid memories of like the postmodern label getting thrown around like a slur. Yeah. Or getting, uh, you know, invoked. And what does that mean? Oh, it doesn't mean anything. That's why they're that. Right. Yes. Yes. Or, you know, or the famous like, well, there's no absolute truth. That's what postmodernism right, is. Right. And then I went to college and learned what postmodernism is. And, and truthfully, I'm, I'm not sure it gave me that much greater clarity, but it was enough clarity to know that they were wrong. Um, yeah. OK, so. <laughs> can I let me take a two second little nerd walk here. Yeah, sure. Postmodernism specifically was a big part of my like expertise exams and all that stuff. My, my field exams were in postmodernism. And I can still tell you I'm confused as all fuck. But that's kind of the point about postmodernity. It's not anything can mean anything, but the ways that individuals and groups of individuals experience forces of oppression, 
liberation, interpretation, any sort of like group or individual uh, social interaction we have Mm -hmm. is always going to be unique to that individual or group of individuals. And therefore, the way they interpret those things philosophically, theoretically, or, you know, practically is going to differ. So really, the postmodern era is not an era of one thing that is postmodernism, but many postmodernisms. I like that. Yeah. And this emergent church is supposedly, allegedly, (laughs) birthed from that tradition or Mm -hmm. that ideology. So the tricky thing about talking about the emerging church is that it's not a singular church. It's mm-hmm. not a super cohesive movement. It des- definitely has a group of people we associate with it. And we can definitely look at some thinkers and writers and say they are or they are not part of the tradition. But it's also not connected to one particular place or person. It doesn't have a founder. Um so when you hear the phrase emerge, what, so anyway, what I would say it's known for, though, is like a particular set of themes or ideas. So what what comes to your mind when you hear the emergent church? What sort of themes come to your mind for just like guiding ideas, beliefs, principles? Yeah, I, I'm going to answer that, I promise. But I have a, I have actually a memory clarity question for you. OK, because in my head, I have a very specific conflict that i remember from bible college and i don't remember if this was a niche conflict or if it was something that actually like hit the the world at large so are you saying emerging or emergent so that's i'm glad that you brought that up because i have noticed as i've done my research on this that there are some groups of people where the terms are used interchangeably and then there's some groups of people who get real freaking upset when the two are used interchangeably. I am assuming your little theology bros are in the latter camp. Yep. <laughs> and I was very much in the former in mm-hmm. that I I feel like the terms were conflated. Uh, when I think of the emerging church, I think of uh the desire to be culturally relevant, whatever the hell that means, mm-hmm. uh to be and again another bible college phrase seeker sensitive um to care about like social justice issues to be progressive in a sense both like in a formal sense like we don't have like organs and hymnals and you know lecterns and things like that yeah so that's the kind of stuff i think of when i think of the emerging church yeah or if they drew on tradition it was like in this like edgy intentional way right yeah Yeah. i'm drawing on tradition but like this tradition guy that you never heard of Right. Yeah. Hipster traditionalism, right? Right. Hipster traditionalism. I like that. Yeah. So I really similar. Some of the key themes I noted was a more fluid theology or at least a tolerance for a more mm-hmm. fluid theology, heavy emphasis on relationships and community, mm-hmm. the notion of the church beyond the building, you know, that this idea that yeah. like church can be anywhere. Yeah. Uh, a greater curiosity about all the things that could be spiritual, which is something we've talked about in the past. This mm-hmm. notion of like everything could be spiritual. Right. And a more liberal political worldview, or again, at the very least, at least a tolerance for a liberal worldview. Sure. I would probably say it's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that someone who's very rigidly conservative is going to be drawn to a church of this kind. So I think the two just sort of went hand in hand, a more progressive politic. So someone like Donald Miller is an example of a person who's writing from this tradition as is someone such as Rob Bell, though I think they exist on potentially different planes or different different places on that spectrum. Sure. So I actually didn't realize it at the time and I didn't use this precise language, but the emerging church and the thinkers associated it with it were actually a really, really big part of like the last five years of my time within Christianity. Um, in the beginning of those years, I was not at a church that would have characterized itself in this way. I was still at a Pentecostal world church, middle of nowhere, very conservative But I often found myself in a lot of the debates and discussions that were unfolding between fundamentalists and that group of people. Yeah, interesting. So around my junior, senior year of high school, there was so much 
Oh my God. There was so much tension in my church and conversations over things like whether it was okay for Christians to drink, whether it was okay for me to vote for Hillary Clinton when I turned 18, whether we should be able to play songs with swear words, whether PG-13 movies could be spiritual, whether Harry Potter could be redemptive, ad nauseum. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, yeah. right? And I was super drawn to these kinds of arguments and often found myself like in the center of them and often defending the perspective of the emerging church, whether I had that language or not, Mm -hmm. partly for shallow reasons. I like wanted to justify some of the things I wanted to do and the media I wanted to enjoy. But I think truthfully, a lot of it was also really earnest. I mean, I really believed what a lot of those emerging church people had to say about everything being spiritual about God being loving and forgiving about the importance of community. Like I, it, I believed it. it. It was really convincing to me. Well, yeah. And, and I think the, those arguments that like, Oh, you're only doing this to be shallow or self-serving to do the mm-hmm. things there's every argument is built off of an impulse towards the thing that attracts you or the thing that you desire. Right. Like, you know, everybody always goes to like the, well, that drug, you'll say anything to get their drugs. That was something that was used on me all the time. It's like, <laughs> but also like, I'm just saying that it's okay to hear the word fuck every now and then. I'm yeah. not trying to, you know, like con somebody out of money so that I can get, there's a difference between <laughs> my argument is the thing that I want because I'm right. arguing for the thing I think is real and good and true. Mm-hmm. And I'm only doing this regardless of what I actually think, because I want the thing. Those are quantifiably different. I yeah, think. they always framed it as like, is this really a do you really have like a deep, you know, sort of theological explanation of this? Or is it just purely about, oh, I want to enjoy this thing and you're telling me I can't enjoy it. Maybe you should probe why you want that thing. You know, that was always how it was framed to me. Right. That makes sense. So that created a lot of arguments with fundamentalists in my life. I think I probably spent hundreds of hours arguing with a best friend over like whether or not it was permissible for Christians to have a, a glass of wine. And as someone who like rarely drinks now, it's kind of funny to me that that was a hill I wanted to die on, but like argued and argued. I'm sorry, um, Teddy, are you telling me that <laughs> long, long time ago you were argumentative and talkative? Yeah, yeah. I am actually saying that I was the type of person who was in it, you know, in it for the for the philosophical thrill, potentially. Yeah. Mm. Um, Now you have a podcast. And now I have a podcast. So, you know, all those arguments. I mean, I was pulled into meetings with leadership, argued with, (laughs) you know, like one on one meetings with like 50 year olds when I'm 16. It's just so freaking weird. But anyway, so. That like was happening at my rural Christian, my rural Pentecostal church. And then I eventually moved on from my childhood church to a small inner city emerging church, like a church that would have called itself that very community based, very art based, more liberal. And that's where I actually spent the last two years of my experience Mm. within Christianity. And honestly, that church experience and those people were probably honestly, some of the craziest of my spiritual journey, but that is a conversation for a different day. It just goes to show not everything is what it seems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So anyway, Blue Like Jazz is written and published within this era of the emergent church. And there's just all this discourse happening within like capital C church. And I was very much interested in all that and very much engaged, even if not as theologically rigorous, I think, as the kind of conversations you were in since I wasn't in a Bible college setting. I don't know. We were still all just undergrads thinking we <laughs> knew what was what. Like, you've heard how undergraduates talk. We didn't we weren't being rigorous. We were right. just using fancy words that we didn't know what we were saying. Right. So I was describing everything and fighting over everything without the terms, I guess. So anyway, I was really torn, actually, on how to present Blue Light Jazz um, in this episode, because I recall really loving it when I read it. In fact, I read it numerous times. I have no negative associations with it. It was completely positive in the sense of I enjoyed reading it. It opened me up to new ways of thinking. But I also have really conflicting feelings about it now and lots of conflicting theories about this kind of church movement more broadly. Okay. So that's my 
that's my disclaimer, right? But I reread Blue Like Jazz in preparation for this episode and now retrospectively can see so many ways that it planted the seeds of deconstruction. Although I wouldn't leave the faith until almost a decade after the first time I read this, it laid, I think, now I can recognize this, it laid a really necessary foundation. And I think it prompted or initiated some of the very first questions and thoughts that led to my deconstruction. And when I chat with other evangelicals, including some of our listeners on Instagram, that seems that that's a pretty shared experience. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you look through the comments on Instagram. Yeah, I saw a few of the comments and they all seem to like stem from that same place. And I think it's really interesting because I remember vaguely the objections to blue like jazz or at least the thoughts of that Miller and the emerging church had that like, oh, this is a setting up a slippery slope or like, oh, once you take this away. And I remember feeling like it was ridiculous that like, oh, you know, really, like you just change one thing. And it, ha ha ha. Jokes on you, little <laughs> Nick. Like, but um, it that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense to me that this was a, a locus of deconstruction catalyst, not just for you, but for a lot of people. Yeah. And I want to talk at the end about that slippery slope thing and whether or not I hate to say this, they were right. <laughs> you know, <Ugh>. like, <laughs> Ah, don't take um, me there. Uh, <laughs> but I'd like to talk about that. Um, because sure. as I was sitting here, I was thinking, wow, like this story ended up the way they said it was going to end up and the way I insisted at 15, it would not end up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, womp, womp. <laughs> so, I want to um, talk about Blue Light Jazz in that way as a text that is both about deconstruction and can prompt deconstruction, even if Donald Miller didn't necessarily intend it. I think we should probably also be clear that deconstruction does exist on a kind of spectrum. So when some fundamentalists say they deconstruct, they actually mean they permanently end up at the kind of place Donald Miller is at, or they end up at the emergent church type philosophy, right? Then there's also when people say deconstruct, they mean that they ended up at unbelief, you Mm -hmm. know, or atheism or agnosticism, which is more me. So you have to be careful with that term because it's like there's no clear, I don't think, destination or I think it's also hard to just pinpoint a beginning and end to deconstruction. It's like pinpointing the beginning and ending of something like healing, maybe. Mm -hmm. Well, I would even I would even take it a step further and say that I don't think it very much like the emerging church. I don't think it means a specific thing. Yeah. Right. I think it's a phenomenon that happens when you grow up in or are instilled with a very rigid cemented uh worldview that is inflexible to change or development and then the deconstruction whatever that ends up looking like Mm. is the process of you allowing that worldview to be subject to change whether yeah. it's just to become more flexible or to use the same rigid components and rearrange them or to say, you know, forget the structure altogether. I'm stepping away from this. It's introducing change and fluidity to a rigid thought system that I would say is the most fundamental foundational definition of deconstruction. And mm-hmm. I think that covers everybody in the spectrum. I agree. Yeah. I, and I don't think that it, I think if you were to ask the average person whether or not they agree with that assessment of what the what these groups of thinkers were advocating, probably everybody would agree with that. We could get into the technicalities, but I, I think that that's I think that's mm. a good summary. So I'm going to try to include what I no longer like about the text, to be fair, and what didn't really age well for me. But I also really want to chat about like why and how it might initiate the average Christian evangelical of our time to deconstruct. Sure. Sounds good to me. So again, Blue Like Jazz is basically one young man's reflection on his spiritual journey. He occasionally says that he prefers the term Christian spirituality rather than Christianity. Okay. A distinction we could probably argue isn't all that important, (laughs) but I mention it because I think much of the book is actually just him wrestling with the notion of Christianity and kind of trying out different titles and names and, you know, 
yeah. to save the same thing a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's what's the phase that we all went through, right? I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Or yeah. I'm not, um, oh, what's the other one? I'm not, a, I'm not a Christian, I'm a follower of the way, or I'm a follower of Christ and not a Christian. Like there's all those like splitting the linguistic hairs. I think it's a potentially helpful exercise. Sure, why not? Yeah. I remember it being a freaking huge deal when I went into Facebook profile edit and changed from Christian to Christ follower. Like that was like, I mean, yeah, I was wedding, you know? So anyway, so he's really into this whole like Christian spirituality rather than Christianity thing. And, you know, again, it's even in that subline of the text. All right. So I'm going to break down what I think are some of the ways that he his the book is ultimately about deconstruction and more so how it might prompt deconstruction, how it prompted my deconstruction. So first and foremost, Donald Miller is deeply concerned with the problems of the church, capital C church. Okay. So much of Blue Light Jazz, more than any other text we've read so far, is a commentary on the Christian church of the early 2000s. And it's especially about all the things Donald Miller does not like and what he thinks the church is doing wrong. Could you read, Nick, the first passage that I put in the document? This is um, this is kind of early on in the text, and he's rattling off all of the things he doesn't like about the church. This is just one little portion. It's like three pages long. Here are the things I didn't like about the churches I went to. First, I felt like people were trying to sell me Jesus. I never felt like Jesus was a product. I wanted him to be a person. Not only that, but they were always pointing out how great their specific church was. The bullet read like a brochure for Amway. They were always saying how life-changing some conference would be. Life-changing? What does that even mean? It sounded very suspicious. I felt like I was bombarded with commercials all week. 15-year-old Teddy just ate this up. That little phrase, what does it even mean? I mean, I'm still saying that. I I just, you know, chef's kiss. Like That was half of our, uh, what is it, uh, Case for Christ episode. Oh, the Rob Bell episode, yeah. It's half of the Rob Bell episode. What does that even mean? I feel like I say that so often. What does that mean? You know, this is just one of so many critiques he has about the church. And a lot of his focus is on complaining about it. But another thing young Teddy's attracted to this. Yes, this is all very attractive to me, but he does a good job, a decent job addressing how he also fits into the problem and is complicit in it, I think. Hmm. In a more profound and serious part of the text, he tells the story about being at Reed College which is apparently this very liberal atheist school. I don't know if it's actually more liberal and atheist than any other school. I was just going to say, I know that Christian schools talk about how like varying degrees of Christian they are, but like, you know, when when we applied to our school, they weren't like, and by the way, we're 96% atheist. (laughs) So, you know, we're doing a pretty good job. But it's like, he like hypes it up as like, it's such an atheist school. And it's like, maybe, maybe it's just higher ed. I don't know. I, I never <laughs> went to Reed College and I certainly wasn't, I wasn't at Reed College in 2004. So, you know, who do or, what I know? But so he's at this super liberal school, right? And he and the other like three Christians apparently at the school set up a confession booth and they tell people to come and confess their sins to Christians. But when the people get into the confession booth, they ultimately like flip the script and end up confessing to them, asking for forgiveness about everything the church has done wrong. And that's like ranging from shitty evangelists on TV all the way to the Crusades. So, you know, like although some of the complaints are a bit petty, some are really real. And Mm -hmm. I think he is serious about it. It seems like this is something he really cares about. This played an interesting role in my deconstruction, I believe, because it was actually one of the first times that I heard another Christian so actively and persistently critique the church Mm -hmm. (laughs) or at least critique it in this kind of language. I I definitely heard the vague like the church needs to be better, you know, but no one was as like brutal about it yet in my life as Donald Miller was. For sure. It seems very much like he opened up that space to just be able to say, hey, you know what? Our house needs some work. Yeah. I'm so familiar with the, well, nobody's perfect, so we do need to work on things, but also we're the best possible option. 
Right. And that brings me to my one of my final points for this, which was I'm curious how you how does this critique register for you now? Like, how do you feel about this brand of Christianity that is very much invested in talking about all its errors and flaws and all the things it does wrong and like acknowledgement of its historical sit? Like, how does that register for you? Does it does it feel real and genuine and productive? Does it feel sort of I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, no, no. I, I appreciate that. I also appreciate the clarity. I thought you were talking about his like selling Jesus comment. And I'm like, yeah, I think I've said this exact same thing to you before. Oh. <laughs> uh, but no, um, the yeah, that like apologetic, not in the like Lee Strobel method, but like in the I'm sorry and offering that methodology. It takes a lot for me to feel like it's genuine. Mm-hmm. Partially because I think think there was so much self-flagellation built into Christianity to begin with um, for us in that time period that it just feels like, oh, yeah, this is what's expected. You're supposed to talk about how terrible you are. And all we need to do is just open that up to an institutional sort of flagellation. And there we go. We can move on and keep being ourselves. Mm -hmm. The other thing, the less cynical version of it is Okay, great. It's a fine place to start. But until you start making some like active institutional changes or institutional restitutions, it feels void. You know, it reminds me of the asking our freshmen to answer the so what question, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, all these problems. So what now? What, you know, yeah, (laughs) since the dawn of time, people have had (laughs) problems has yeah. been shitty yeah yeah you know. like okay great. thanks so, what do you say i appreciate saying? that you recognize this but like let's talk about how do we fix this how about instead of talking about how the church doesn't care enough for homeless people you stop paying for your building to sing in it and you open it up as a homeless shelter right and in donald miller's defense um i think he is very much saying here are the problems of the church and here's what this new brand of christianity his particular that's actually the kind of annoying thing is that he like goes on and on about like how he doesn't want to like sell a church and then he spends like pages talking about how great his church is you know right. Right. It's like my church is doing it differently and fun fact he's no longer at that church he no longer goes to church at all hmm, hmm. <laughs> but um yeah so that's a little annoying it's like dude you're selling you're doing the thing you're doing the thing yeah and again there is definitely something to be said like like we were just talking about of like forcing people to confront the problematic issues of the church that is mm-hmm. a huge thing especially at the time period right there isn't that sort of self-reflexivity in a package that christians would be willing to accept and i think mm-hmm. maybe that's part of blue like jazz's success Mm-hmm. is that as controversial as it was it still found its way in the door you know yes. for a lot of christians yes and it's easy for us i think to critique it now being so far outside but again going back to my original point about the role it played in my deconstruction at the time this discourse was not at all familiar to me it was mm-hmm. brand new and just the idea that it was even okay to criticize the capital c church was a relatively revolutionary concept. Yeah, for sure. Um, So second point, and this really intersects with the first because he ties it a lot to his complaints about the church. Miller aligns himself loosely with a different set of politics and suggests that the church should not be married to the Republican Party. (gasps) Stone the witch. Crazy. So throughout the book, he talks a fair share about politics and really brings you back. Um, when Blue Like Jazz was written, we were at the height of the Iraq war. Mm. He does not seem to like George W. Bush very much. Um, he talks about a friend he has who regularly protests the war. He sp- expresses a lot of annoyance about the church's insistence that Christians need to support both the president and the Republican Party. Um And I have an example of this. Could you read that second passage? Another thing about the churches I went to, they seem to be parrots for the Republican Party. Are the Republicans that perfect? I just felt like in order to be part of that family, I had to think George W. Bush was Jesus. And I didn't. I didn't think Jesus really agreed with a lot of the policies of the Republican Party or for that matter, the Democratic Party. Jesus was religious, not political. I felt like a pawn for the Republicans. 
Meanwhile, the Republicans didn't give a crap about the causes of Christ. So this was pretty huge for me yeah. as a teenager who grew up in a religious community, but also had a family that definitely leaned a bit more socially liberal. Um, so people like Donald Miller, I think, gave me permission to lean more into that social justice oriented Christianity that didn't mm -hmm. align perfectly with the Republican Party. Maybe it didn't even align perfectly with the Democrat Party, but it just kind of gave me permission to not align with the right necessarily. Yeah. And that was a huge I mean, I needed that permission too. my my story was similar, but my family was always fairly conservative. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a huge I mean, just some of the things that he's saying, like I had to think George W. Bush was Jesus in the era po in the po hopefully post Trump era. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we can really understand this language. Yeah. Miller never praises the left for being more noble or godly. So he's not this writer who's saying the real way forward is to be a Democrat. He's kind of just saying that both parties are complicit and in not advancing the teachings of Christ. Right. Which is not something you would hear very often at the time. It, it feels maybe a bit like duh now. Mm -hmm. But at the time, that was a wake up call to me to step back and be like, Christ said to feed the homeless. Christ said you know, if someone takes this from you, give them the other thing. Christ is anti-war. Whoa. Like our parties are not representing the teachings of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then reckoning with that and asking myself, should they be? If not, then what's my role in voting? What should I be doing outside the voting booth? It just, it prompted so many questions I had never asked before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it makes, makes total sense that this leads to that. All right. Point number three. Miller is extremely focused on relationship-based evangelism and the importance of community. And this is perhaps the one that I am the most confused about in terms of my overall feelings about it now, right? Okay. So one of Miller's main points and the point of this, these types of thinkers is that Christians need to spend much more time in community and much more time just being with people talking with people, loving people. Mm -hmm. And because of that, a huge part of the book is him summarizing various conversations he has with some of the, some people, you know, some of these people are Christians, but a lot of them are non-believers. He has a lot in this text about being a Christian while at Reed college and encountering these atheists. Um, and he sits around smoking pipes with them. <clears throat> And talking about God, this was also like the era of my life where I thought many more people sat around smoking pipes and cigars than they actually do. Thankfully, I guess, because that shit's yes, terrible yeah. for you, right? I, I that was one of those things that always uh, I always leaned on when I talked to people about like smoking or drinking as a Christian. And I'm like, OK, cool. You're going to tell C.S. Lewis and Tolkien that they got to put their <laughs> pipes down and not drink their beer. No, how dare you? OK, right. Calm down. Now. Yeah. This church, this type of church was also known for, and he, you know, Donald Miller loves this, the like having church in a bar mm -hmm. type thing, you know, like, which now I'm looking back and I'm like, you were just trying to be controversial. Like, why do you need to have church in a bar? <laughs> but again, at the time I defended, I was like, this makes so much sense, you know? Yeah, I did too. There was actually a Driscoll book where he talks about the same thing. Like uh, he hosted a thing like like a pastor in pints or something like that. And he would like go to the bar and and drink beer and talk with like bro time and like <laughs> bro time. It was it was theology bro time. But yeah, I again, it feels it's confusing. I like that phrase that you used because it it feels on the one hand kind of like a nicer version of verb witnessing. Right. Mm -hmm. Like. Oh, instead of going out there and being aggressive and like hounding people with a particular message or agenda, you just sit down, you have conversations and, mm. you know, you just be a good person and talk with people. But <laughs> this is like what I call like multi-level marketing Christianity. Yeah. You need to turn every single conversation into a potential sale. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how it feels to me. 
Yeah, I can see two versions of it. If maybe if one version is you will truly believe that your only duty here on this earth, and I do think that there are some folks within this tradition who believe this, is to just be with people. And that means more conversations and more community and more time with others than fine. I'm fine with that, you know. But I do think that there is another brand of this that very easily can happen. And I think the first thing can then slip into this thing quite easily where it does become a more subtle mode of evangelism in that you are not approaching these conversations and these people and the sense of community with purely a just desire to know people. Your desire to know people might be there, but it's also still guided or like uplifted by a desire, hopefully, to use that relationship to change their mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no such thing as a genuine like interaction because you're always looking to pivot it into the sales pitch you're always looking to like see how you can leverage whatever uh, social currency you've favored you have from that person and turn it into a conversion you know right um, they're and going to see they're going to see how open-minded you are how loving and relational you are and that that that's your goal and that will eventually lead them to christ but it's that that will eventually do x y and z that's where i think the problem mm-hmm. comes in and like you said does start to feel a little mlme and that there's like it's like a there's an agenda behind it even if mm-hmm. it's a good-hearted one yeah um, absolutely I, again i think it ultimately produces the opposite effect that it claims to aim for which is like it said it claims oh go and just be with people have good relationships and that's what will matter Mm -hmm. but then all of your relationships become less genuine and less substantial yeah yeah absolutely and i think now as someone who's so far outside of this One thing I ask myself a lot is, are any of my relationships built upon a belief that hopefully I will change someone's mind about something? Mm. And if so, that's a freaking huge problem, you know, because I'm aware that the church, I feel like the church sort of ingrained that in me. So I have to watch that I don't do it politically. I don't do it, you know, that it's, you know, and this notion of like loving people just for who they are, that's complicated and hard to define. but. If I still think it's a good thought exercise to be asking yourself, like when I approach my relationships with people, you know, is there anything in me that's hoping that the relationship will yield that they change in X, Y and Z ways? And that's probably worth interrogating. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, As a teenager that what this was still though really powerful for me because it gave me language to describe what was sometimes missing in my own life which i think was like intense deep connections with others mm-hmm. um it inspired me to more actively pursue those things and i think it also going back to the notion of you know it gave you an excuse or justified as a not conflict driven person and as someone who didn't really like the intense fire and brimstone evangelism this was much more comfortable to me this notion Mm. that i could just kind of be myself and let the chips fall as where they may you know yeah this was much more appealing to me it felt gentler it didn't feel as threatening it felt like something it felt like a form of evangelism i could do i could be in relationship with people that's i'm good at that you know yeah yeah i I think that tracks with me too um that's why the like noun be a witness for all of the problems we've talked about mm-hmm. is still was more appealing than going out and like having apologetics duels with people on the street <laughs> right and we can't i don't think we can really overstate how big of a or how different this perspective was from what we grew up with just five to seven years before right in mm. the era of the wwjd bracelet the salvation bracelet the the tracks, the missions trips, this was really freaking different, you know, this model of evangelism. So it, yeah, it was really, it was really impactful to me. I would be remiss not to say that as a writer now, this, his style of communicating this falls really flat for me. Um, He writes about the people in his life, like they are literal characters. Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> like sometimes characters or might I say characters sure. he gives all the people in his book these like goofy names like Tony the beat poet and Andrew the protester <laughs> and it's clear he's using them as like players whose overall goal goal is to help him convey something about his story sure so and it's also kind of funny because like throughout the whole text there's one specific line he says quote the most difficult lie i ever contended with is this life is a story about me <laughs> and the whole book it's just like and if you like go on goodreads and like read you know people sort of take about the text so many people are like oh my god this guy's so into himself it so i i just say that to be fair that this is a flaw of this text it reads very like the story of donald and right. donald's people and what donald's people did for donald's life it's just yeah even while he constantly reiterates like i i don't it's not about me i don't want it to be about me he's like mm. such main character energy like he thinks he's such main character you know? yeah it reminds me a lot of um th there's a technique in comedy writing um called lampshading right where like Oh, I think you've told me about something, this. Yeah, something inappropriate happens. And one of the characters goes, well, that's inappropriate. And then they move on <laughs> this way. They still get to make the bad joke or like make fun of somebody inappropriately. But like, oh, well, we mentioned it. So therefore it doesn't happen. That's what that line feels like. Like he spends the yeah. entire time. He's the central character going, but I wasn't the main character of this story. Mm -hmm. Lampshade. Your lampshade thing, though, might actually be giving him a little too much credit in terms of like strategy. <laughs> like, I actually, <laughs> I actually kind of think he doesn't see it, which is funnier in some ways, you know. Oh, it's a lot funnier when it's yeah. not self aware, it's funnier. It's, yeah, he, I, I don't think he realizes that he's really, this is the Don show, even while he's constantly talking about his, how his whole life he's worked on it not being. The Don show. Another really funny thing, you know, I mentioned that all the character, you know, the people in his life kind of playing out almost like characters. There's this other really funny line where he's talking about being a kid in Sunday school. And I kid you not, he says he used to make people up as a kid to like basically tell good stories. And I was like, uh oh, I hope Did you just give away the game, Don. It gave me the it gave me the same energy as when you were talking about Driscoll in that one passage where he like kind of casually makes note that he did had unethical practices in oh, his uh, Strobel. 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 Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Strobel. Yeah. I talk um, about Driscoll way too much. Strobel. Yeah, yes. Really do. Yeah. It gave yeah. me that sort of energy where he's like, oh, by the way, in the past, I used to make up people all the time in order to make a point. And it's like, are you still making up people to make a point? Because some of these people feel really unbelievable. <laughs> But, oh man. So anyway, that all falls a little flat for me. So let me ask you um, this question, and maybe you have this loaded up. I don't know. Is there anything on the like philosophical or ideological level that falls flat now or that feels it, not just like the normal, like, OK, but this is meaningless. Like, is there anything that reaches that level in this? I would actually say that you pro that's probably a nice transition into my final point, which I think is also the thing that I have the biggest problem with. The, the three things ahead, the political thing I'm great with, you know, the complaints about the church. Fine. Mm -hmm. um, I get a little bit more ambivalent about the relationship stuff. But here's this last point is the one I still struggle with the most to this day. And it probably came out a bit in the Rob Bell episode. So the final point being that Miller really leans heavily into the idea that Christians are too certain of things. They need to lean more into a fluid model of Christianity. They need to embrace the unknown and stop being so theologically rigid. All of that more relativism more embracing of we don't know we don't know it may be that it may not be that um could you read passage number three for me which i thought was an example of this at the end of the day when i'm lying in bed and i know the chances of any of our theology being exactly right are a million to one i need to know that god has things figured out 
that if my math is wrong, we are still going to be okay. And wonder is that feeling we get when we let go of our silly answers, our mapped out rules that we want God to follow. I don't think there is any better worship than wonder. Right. Familiar, right? In the not only familiar, but I the entire time I just hear you in the back of my head. What does that mean though? (laughs) Oh no, I'm rubbing off. (laughs) Yeah, but what is that? What okay, what is um I'm sorry. There's no better worship than wonder. You know, again, this is current Teddy, right? Not past Teddy. Current Teddy's like, what does that mean? You know, in the past, though, this was very impactful to me. And oh my gosh, this whole so- uncertainty thing, crazy <laughs> huge for me. I, that's my thing that I just ate up. I loved that idea. With a spoon. With a spoon, a big old spoon. Can you read the last passage? It's connected to this. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, this was like it's the first paragraph in chapter 10. Correct. My most recent faith struggle is not one of intellect. I don't really do that anymore. Sooner or later, you just figure out there are some guys who don't believe in God and they can prove he doesn't exist. And some other guys who do believe in God and they can prove he does exist. And the argument stopped being about God a long time ago. And now it's about who is smarter. And honestly, I don't care. I don't believe I'll ever walk away from God for intellectual reasons. Who knows anything anyway? If I walk away from him, and please pray that I never do, I will walk away for social reasons, identity reasons, deep emotional reasons, same reasons that any of us do. And just one more thing to add to this. The title even of the book is in reference to this kind of idea. So the, the line is, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. I used to not like God because God doesn't resolve. A bunch of people on Goodreads was like, jazz music does resolve though. But anyway, that's a different point. Um, so, you know, this it's, it's in the title of the book. It's a, it's a consistent theme throughout where he's like lean into the wonder, lean into the mystery. The intellectualism really isn't where it's at, despite his also being like, then we sat around and talked about the, nitty gritty details of the new testament for five hours with our pipes overall thoughts on this i have a lot yeah yeah there's so much to talk about here i actually kind of like where it started okay my recent struggle of faith is not one of intellect you know something we alluded to in the strobel episode was that you know like the idea of evidence is contrary to the nature of faith anyway Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're sitting trying to prove something, then you're not wanting to have faith in it. So I, I kind of like the like letting go of the need to prove that what you're having faith in. But he very quickly and immediately turns into something much more. More than problematic. Right. Some guys don't believe in God and can prove he doesn't exist. Some believe and can prove that he does exist. Right. No. N- no. That's not how proof works. That's not how evidence works. You can't just prove that two necessarily counter proposals are true. Right. That's not how evidence, that's not how proof or argumentation works. I get that he's not necessarily talking about the nature of evidence here, but that's what it ends up being about. Like he's talking about some people you just can't convince them because they have everything they need. Mm-hmm. And it's that latch on to certainty. But man, that's so problematic. And it's another like it's another pushpin on the board of like how Christians became came to embrace conspiracy theories so much. Yeah. You know, that's an intricate network that I'd really like to study more deeply. But suffice to say for this, like, oh, well, just because your evidence bruises your thing doesn't mean I have to believe it because I have evidence that I like. Doesn't matter if it actually works or not. Right. That's really problematic and I think very insidious. However, one more layer, and I'll let you say your thing. Yeah. I don't believe I'll ever walk away from God for intellectual reasons. Uh, the only reason any of us do is for identity and social reasons. Fuck you. Right? <laughs> like, loved you, Don, but also fuck you on that because if anything, that last line or last, I'm sorry, two lines embodies what remains one of my most annoying and hurtful 
types of discourse that the church does about non-believers, which is that you walked away because you wanted to do fun things. You walked away because you were mad at us. You walked away because you were bitter about the church rather than you walked away because you did deep, agonizing, frustrating, terrible reflection and theological digging and tragically actually arrived at unbelief. Right. Which was my experience. Sorry, very similar to my experience. And the, the, the title of this subsection is The Birth of Cool. I don't know where he's going with it, but I'm already offended. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm bothered by it. like, really? I wanted to be cool and accept it. That's why so many of my friends don't talk to me anymore. That's why so many people have disowned me or said horrible things about me or I got, you know, fired from a job. Like, that's the reason I went through this heartbreaking process. Is because I wanted to be cool. Right, right. What I feel like reader, maybe less so then because these types of churches were rare, but I think what a lot of people forget too, Christians forget now, is like, if I was only pissed off with your fundamentalism, or if I was only pissed off about some of your politics, I would just go find a freaking liberal Christian church. There's plenty of them. Like, I live in a nice area where there's lots of very liberal social justice oriented churches that I could go to. That's not the problem. The problem is so much bigger than that. Unfortunately, I wish it wasn't, you know, I actually really wish that it wasn't, but it is. And when they people say shit like this, it completely undermines. I really do believe the the difficulty of the of, of the process of losing the faith and just how painful it is when people trivialize it like this. Mm -hmm. It's very upsetting to me. Tell me if this tracks with you, but this is very reminiscent of the language that I hear a lot of conservatives use for like being social justice oriented or changing your opinion or perspective about social issues. Right. Like, oh, you know, you don't actually care about, you know, queer people. You just want to look like you accept that. That it's like performative. Or you don't actually care about racial justice you just don't want to look bad in front of your woke friends or something like that like it's not that you actually have had a change of heart or a a particular belief that you genuinely hold because no one could possibly hold that because it's absurd by nature so you actually have to just be wanting to identify a particular way yeah, I think I can see that. I think that the identify, like the process of identifying, moving from like conservative to liberal, I don't think that that's as hard and alienating as leaving faith, because I think you're often when you move from one political sort of ideology into another, with that often comes new community, I think. Um, whereas there's a sort of alienating nature, or at least in my experience, you know, losing the losing faith was very, very alienating. Mm. Uh, I also, though, did not I can't speak to this as well as you can, because I also did not move so strictly from like one political box to a different political box. You know, like Mm. I grew up again with a a bit more of a a liberal mindset and my faith was always sort of informed by that. Um, So my faith didn't correspond as much as yours did with like also an emerging a different type of political ideology. I was going to say you slipped into the emerging language. Emerging, yeah. I was never a hardcore, I was never a conservative, is what right. I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, it's okay, no one's going to accuse you of that, it's all right. No, and I, and I was like, you know, I, I, I watch the trajectory of a lot of young men that I grew up with pivot into, like, the far right, and I'm like, holy shit, I barely swerved to avoid that exit. Oh, yeah. That's terrifying to me. But I was never funny. in the lane, you know, like it was yeah, yeah. never going to happen. Yeah. I, I remember so many Christians talking about identity politics as mm-hmm. something that the left does, the progressive, the emergent people, but it's not something they did. They're just holding on to the truth. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, you're also voting for a guy because he said he was a Christian or because he you know, held a Bible or whatever, like you're doing identity politics, too. 
you yeah. just think you're right about it mm-hmm. like i don't know i i feels maybe it's more toxic to leave a political alignment if everyone in your sphere shares that political alignment yeah that's a good point particularly now yeah i think things are worse for transitioning from one side of the aisle to the other yeah um for sure yeah for sure i mean and like you always say too when you attach cosmic consequences onto things Right. right so when you have leaving the faith it's not just like, I vehemently disagree with you. It's like, wow, you're no longer going to be with me in heaven one day. Yeah. You know? So now I would probably go as far to say that some political discourse has become so inflammatory that it's practically on the level of religion. But that is on a, that's a different that's also a different conversation. Yep. But you brought this up. So um. <laughs> so sorry. Keep derailing your your nice, tight, you know, my very uh, tidy, my very tidy um, episode. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, moral of the story is that going back to the idea of this being profound in my deconstruction, this opened up so many new ways of thinking for me, this idea of a more fluid theology. I felt like it gave me permission to ask questions that I had had my whole life about the scriptures. It gave me a bit more permission to be, you know, comfortable with the idea of some of those questions actually not having answers, because that was a big talking point here was like, you're never going to know the answers, you know. And I liked that, I, you know, I was a more, I think I was a already, a, a, although a believer who was entrenched in fundamentalism, I always had a greater tolerance for ambiguity than a lot of my friends did, you know? So this was very, this was like speaking my language. Mm-hmm. Um, the question I wanted to end with though, is looking back on this now, it is funny to me because the fundamentalists in my life, again, I said this, insisted that the ideas of this church these thinkers the the donald millers the rob bells that they would lead people to backslide backslide (laughs) um talk about christian lingo and eventually leave the church altogether given that both of us had this phase of progressing through this stage of christianity does that register for you like do you think that embracing this sort of philosophy did in fact pave the way for your unbelief or was it a stage that also could very well have just like that there were different factors and that stage could have very well solidified into just a more progressive Christianity? Or do you actually kind of see this as like the gateway drug? (laughs) (laughs) So I have really track to disbelief town, you know, I don't know. I, I love this question and I have really complicated feelings about it. but. I think the answer is no, I don't think I, I don't think it tracks Okay. because of how many people I know that are living robust, mm. meaningful, rich, lo- satisfied lives in this space. Okay. People that I love, people that I know are intellectually like rigor. I hate the word rigor, but like mm-hmm. are really like putting things through the paces. But they have found themselves in this space and they find it satisfying. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's fair to any stage of life to call it necessarily transitional Mm -hmm. or exclusively transitional. Yeah. Honestly, the thing that triggered my deconstruction, the phase of my life, if we're going to talk about it that way, the phase of my life that triggered my deconstruction more than anything was the more tightly bound conservative era. Mm-hmm. It okay. was, oh, wait, hang on. Why? Hang on. I got to take a step back. Oh, this is a nice space, but what are you guys doing differently? Yeah. Hang on. What if I take another step? You know what I mean? It's that initial space, the pressure that that initial space put me in mm-hmm. more than this progressive space. Okay. It reminds me a lot of, um, there was actually an article on the Gospel Coalition a couple of years ago oh. where uh, I think it was Alyssa Childers, who's the, the lead singer, was, was the lead singer of Zoe Girl. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. You've meant, you've talked about her. Yeah, she's kind of crazy and we should probably talk about her um at some point 
anyway, she posted this whole thing about how progressive Christianity is a gateway to atheism. And that was like that was that was the thesis of her of her thing. Her yeah. points were terrible. She's not that great of a writer. Um, but she makes this whole point. And realistically, if you just look at progressive Christians, they have genuine responses. They have answers that help fill those spaces in. Mm-hmm. I really do believe that it's a, it can be a slippery slope for people and that you can pass through this pretty quickly. But I also don't think it needs to be. Mm-mm. You know, I think that's far too prescriptive of this thing called deconstruction of the to, to use this phrase spiritual journey. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm sorry, everybody. Not to sound like a libertarian, but like everybody gets to live the way they want to. Yeah. The, the problem that you have, you being fundies, is that people not everybody is living like you. So to you, everybody's the same. So you might as well be an atheist if you've been a, if you've become a progressive. Mm-hmm. And that's what that smacks up to me. Right. Yeah, I think I agree. I think I agree. I think if you asked me this question, I would really struggle to answer it. So I'm sorry to spring it on you. So, you know, no, like, it's... because it's it is a really, really tough question. I mean, the first thing that did come to my mind was exactly the first thing you said, which was that we can't we could maybe say this was a bit of a slippery slope for me personally, but we cannot say that is universally true because there are way, way too many progressive Christians who are steadfast in their belief, like you said, have a sophisticated, you know, sort of, there's a sophisticated harmony between their faith and their politics. So the the mere existence of that ever-growing group of people suggests that this is not a default, this is not an automatic thing or a guaranteed thing, right? If you want to say it, it could, you know, it might increase the likelihood of then sure. But my experience has been for the same number of people who have been here and progressed into atheism. There's also the same number of people who haven't, Yeah, you know, so like I said to a lot of people, uh, you know, when when I was in this stage, a lot of fundamental friends were like, oh, no, you're doing something wrong because you can't possibly like be you're being dogmatic just like I am like, no. My worldview allows for your existence, just like it allows for an atheist existence. Everybody gets to have their space, you know, very it's a very much a postmodern faith Mm -hmm. in that sense. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything for another person. You know, I don't get to dictate how another person lives their life. And I think that the, the fundamentalist part always comes back to like my the progressive Christian perspective allows for the fundamental perspective and the atheistic perspective, mm-hmm. but the fundamentalist perspective only allows for not. Yes. Right. It's again, we talked about this uh, in the, the mini episode, right? There has to be that other. Mm-hmm. And so you against everything else, all the yeah. other religious groups, all the other types of Christians, all the atheists, all the agnostics, everybody. It's right. just they're the others. And so very clearly, if you view this as a fringe and you're on the mountaintop, everybody's just going to fall away into that pool of other. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that would be my my first thing is that there's just too many people who have figured this out for you to tell me and have me believe that this is automatically going to leave lead to unbelief, you know, because it just it just doesn't hold up, I don't think, in reality. And then the second thing is just more a bigger issue I take with fundamentalists, very transparent anxiety over people having access to other ways of thinking and information. It reminds Mm. me of that quote from Carl Sagan that was like, if it can be destroyed by the truth, maybe it deserves to be. Yeah. Like you're saying that this lifelong ideology that is supposedly so sincere and powerful can't hold up to another branch of Christianity. Like, right. Maybe that doesn't speak so much to the evil of that other thing as much as it does to the frailty of the original worldview. Right. So that's, I think that, but that's a bigger critique I have, but it's something I think about a lot is that like, what are you admitting when you admit that this worldview can't withstand interrogation or can't withstand again, just a different version of Christianity. We're not talking about, intense atheism you know 
we're talking about just a different, maybe different interpretation of the scriptures that your worldview can't withstand that. Yep. Mm -hmm. How strong is it, you know? So anyway, as you can see, I think Blue Like Jazz played a major role in my deconstruction. I think for 16-year-old me, it was really, really powerful. You know, in the spirit of the emerging church folks, Rob Bell, he had that recent podcast where he was like, that was a Rob, you know, that was 10 Robs ago or 20 Robs ago. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that there's like versions of ourselves. Um, This was probably 20 Teddies ago, you know, but it was really, really powerful at the time. For sure. The only thing I wanted to end with was that you might be curious where Donald Miller is now. Yes, I am very curious. Well, Nick, he's not in a pub talking about Jesus as much anymore. So in 2017, he released a book called Building a Story Brand, which is about marketing and messaging. And then in 2022, he published Hero on a Mission, A Path to a Meaningful Life. He has a company called Story Brand, which, if I'm understanding correctly, is mostly about helping small businesses market themselves and like create a unified image for their advertising. <laughs> so needless to say, he's not really a recognized Christian writer anymore. From what no. I can see, he primarily writes about business. And his most recent book, The Hero on a Mission, was actually more broadly self-help rather than religious. He occasionally talks on like Facebook lives about his faith. He says he's no longer going to church, but he still prays to Jesus. And he especially prays more now because he has children, which... You know, because that, that makes sense. Um, but now he's in business and we were you and I were chatting yesterday about how it's kind of a career trajectory we respect, not necessarily to business, but out of the like Christian celebrity, you know, world. Right. And into something totally different. Yeah. Compared to compared to your Josh Harris, who just keeps trying to rebrand himself for the same position. <laughs> um, so, yeah, props to Donald Miller for moving on. Thanks for what you did. Best of luck to you now. <laughs> and that is Blue Light Jazz. Thanks so much for joining us t- for today's discussion on Oh God, I Forgot About That. If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss future conversations, please follow us so you get notifications of upcoming episode releases. You can also interact with us between episodes on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So make sure to search for us and chat with us in those places. And one last thing. We'd be so grateful if you rated the podcast. It'll help keep us visible and ensure others hear about us. Thanks again for joining us on this journey of remembering. Talk to you soon.